Blog Talk Radio.
great-great-grandfather and your white-great-grandfather sold my great-grandfather and your white-grandfather raped my grandmother and your father stole, cheated, lied, and robbed my father. What kind of a fool would I have to be to say, come, my friend, to the white daughter and son? Good evening, America. This is your president. Please listen carefully to the announcement I'm about to make. After careful consideration and research, Vice President Duke, Congress, and myself have concluded that black people have not advanced technologically. Their educational testing scores are on a rapid decline. The vast majority of them are on welfare and producing babies at a faster rate than they can support them. And we will not carry them anymore. We are left with no other choice but to put slavery back into effect. All blacks will report to the designated camps in their area to receive further orders. The only blacks excused will be those serving in the United States military and the police. Any blacks who do not cooperate will be terminated immediately. I repeat, slavery is back in effect. We at war! That's what I told you. I know you heard what the president said, and if the nigga don't move, then he's dead. It's time for us to take the stand. Woman to woman and man to man. Blood rushes through your veins, you feel the fear. Who'd have thought that it could happen here? In the land of the free, home of the brave. The year's 95, you're a slave. When they first hear the news Press play and then rewind and review But the message is clear And it cuts just like the knife You don't surrender, they take your life And I remember some movies my mama used to show me Remember the times when they bought and they sold us We are That's what I told you That's what I told you Wicked 
individuals who have lifted them up, Howard. Paul, you conservatives make a mistake. You can't afford to strangle hope in people. Without hope, people become dangerous. No, Howard, you liberals have let them invade our society. You give them jobs, political jobs. Paul, you missed the point. It's only the smart ones we move up. <laughs> that makes it even worse. No, no, we have to move them up. If we leave a smart one in the ghetto, he might develop into a leader against us. But if we raise him up into white society, we neutralize him. He feels compelled to try to act like us. He loses his identity and uh, his racial anger, if he has any. He becomes alien to his brothers. They realize he's sold them out and they grow to hate him. He becomes worthless to them and safe for us. That's no thank you. In fact, in his love for the creature comforts, except for his color, he's become one of us. Uh, it's you liberals who have lifted them up, Howard. Paul, you conservatives make a mistake. You can't afford to strangle hope in people. Without hope, people become dangerous. No, Howard, you liberals have let them invade our society. You give them jobs, political jobs. Paul, you missed the point. It's only the smart ones we move up. <laughs> that makes it even worse. No, no, we have to move them up. If we leave a smart one in the ghetto, he might develop into a leader against us. But if we raise him up into white society, we neutralize him. He feels compelled to try to act like us. He loses his identity and uh, his racial anger, if he has any. He becomes alien to his brothers. They realize he's sold them out and they grow to hate him. He becomes worthless to them and safe for us. That's no thank you. In fact, in his love for the creature comforts, except for his color, he's become one of us. We'd like to welcome you to Africa on the move. This is Brother Africa coming to you live with no job on the 30th day of July. 223. We'll be featuring our first part of a two-part series, a critique of racial capitalism. That's right, we can critique this concept called racial, racial capitalism, and we'd like to invite you to join us as we continue to travel down this road of liberation. Like always, we can speak truth to the powerful and the powerless. Now, panelists and analysts will sit in their seats, and they will take the heat. As we decide it, they will stand behind it. Come and join us by dialing in at 323-679-0841. This is Brother Africa, and right now, you know how we do it. We just started with our party by introducing to you our political panelists and analysts for today's program. First, we'd like to introduce Brother Haki, who's a member of the African Women's Association, and we'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Haki. Can you hear us, Brother Haki? I think Brother Haki is having some issues, some technical issues with his technology. Um, what we're going to do, we're going to try to come back to him until then. We're going to make our transition to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony is an organizer for the All African Peoples 
Revolutionary Party GC, and we'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, uh, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Object of this Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Let's try to come back to Brother Haki and see if he can hear us now. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Move. Can you hear us now? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Hello? Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Welcome to Africa on the Move. Okay, my name is Haki Kamaki Mishoki. Currently, I'm with African Awareness. <clears throat> and, of course, Brother Africa, you know my thing is, all about institution building. But one of the things I think prior to discussion around institution building, some some realization we have to uh we have to uh discern. And part of that is that, you know, there's a concept that's being bandied about by the very wealthy in terms of the apocalypse. It's very interesting that the very wealthy people are now claiming potential potentiality of apocalyptic event happening in America. So I find that very, very extraordinary. But the reason they do it is not because they truly believe in the apocalypse, but, but more so as a tactic in terms of justify more exploitation into the future. In fact, when we talk about planning, these people are doing a masterful job in terms of planning for the future, in terms of not only maintaining an unjust system, but actually making that, that unjust system much more palatable. But anyway, Brother Africa, I want you to check this out in terms of, you know, some of the things that are going on behind the scenes, which people really need to understand this challenge that we, we are confronted with in American society. Now, Sam Bankman Freed, on indictment for cryptocurrency fraud, made a profound statement about the inevitability of apocalypse and steps needed to avoid such fate for the wealthy. In deconstructing his statement, it's clear avoidance of apocalypse entails access to wealth, and without wealth, escape from apocalypse is impossible. As a member of the effective altruism movement, the focus of the membership is to amass as much wealth as possible and use that wealth to acquire assets, particularly land to ensure their isolation from catastrophic events, thus ensuring the wealthy survival. Allegedly, Freed himself was attempted to buy the small island of Nauru, inhabited by over 11,000 people. Now, claims of impending apocalypse is not new, but the fact tech police are embraced by the most wealthy individuals in the world easily dismissed. Tech billionaires, largely responsible for the erosion of civil society, global and otherwise, have been busy constructing luxurious bunkers and private military security to protect themselves from societal breakdowns. The irony is, with societal breakdowns, systems of power no longer enjoy a privileged existence, and the doggy-dog existence resulting in societal breakdown means the wealthy's ability to manipulate and control becomes tarnished, which means they become preferred targets for victimization. We should not conclude the wealthy is not aware of the intrinsic threat posed by so many impoverished who will be disadvantaged by techno-financial world that views profitability as sacrosanct and the economic exploitation of increasing numbers of poor as a means to get there. Now, of course, challenges posed by the poor masses can be alleviated by mass incarceration, disease mobility, morbidity, and poverty, but environmental challenges brought on by capitalism renders these historical strategies less effective 
securing profits, giving, increasing calls for materials to construct high-tech prisons or <laughs> expenditures for large internment camps, in addition to declining resources of the planet and the costs associated to mine such resources. Now, what is sought is a way to facilitate social control in a way that's not obvious <laughs> while serving the interests of the wealthy, ensuring profits in the face of capital, capitalist-inspired scarcity. Both objectives could be achieved using technology in a way that fuses the human organism and technology together to create a more pliable human being, which takes direction from technology, bringing human consciousness obsolete. Sounds dystopia? It is, and very much alive. Long-termism, the catalyst behind effective altruism movement, sees apocalypse as an eligibility of unfettered capitalism. Rather than seeking to move away from capitalism to save humanity, Long-termism embraces the notion that the individual must change and not capitalism. Implicit in long-termism is a class analysis which implies human life value is compartmentalized into authentic and conditional. For conditional lives, their existence is shaped by institutions, social norms, and conventions that deem their lives irrelevant. From long-termism perspective, the continuation of systems that prioritize the lives of the wealthy seems logical associated with planting technology inside poor human beings, even with advancement in genetics, artificial intelligence, and nanotechnology at its core is unhuman. <laughs> now, now immorality, immorality aside, the implication of nanotechnologies have been documented, indicating adverse impacts. A recent study released by the Florida Surgeon General Office concluded in the year 2022, cardiac arrest deaths resulted in males between the ages of 18 and 39 after receiving vaccine for COVID-19. According to Joseph, Dr. Joseph Lobato, this number represented an 84% increase in deaths. While 84% mortality sounds excessive, there's no doubt lipid nanoparticles used to create vaccines for Pfizer and Moderna have demonstrated through clinical trials systematic inflammatory responses affecting all major body organs. Now, despite the confirmation of the deadly side effects, the vaccine was still merchandised and sold. Clearly, economics was driving motive, but experimentation cannot be disregarded. Now, since nanotechnology will play a large role in attempting to transport pliable subjects, programmed to act and think as programmed, the, possi- the possibility of a, a, a apocalyptic events cannot be discounted. This is particularly so given the unpredictable nature of artificial intelligence, technology, and its potential impact. Given these factors, perhaps explains the wealthy's fascination with the apocalypse. Now, of course, numerous claims of the apocalypse have been cited from the, Mar- from the May- uh, Mayan calendars to Nostradamus to the rapture enthusiasts among evangelicals. None of these revolution- revelations come-, come close to establishing the inevitability or necessity of apocalypse like Bill Gates' claim. Bill Gates, unlike Nick Bostrom, who advocates legitimacy of artificial intelligence, Gates has focused exclusively on the human body as the receptacle of information both stored and disseminated. Under Bill Gates' plan, along with Jeff Bezos, an interface could be created by injecting brain-computer chips directly into blood vessels, thereby <coughs> establishing the means for humans to not only receive information, but to communicate information. Information streams could be bifurcated, ensuring certain information could be excluded from certain sectors of society, consequently compounding their level of stress. If one were to extrapolate Gates' uh, program, which is called the method, <laughs> method Apparatus for Transmitting Power and Data Using the Human Body program, it's an ingenious way to form an inequality in a manner more difficult to assess 
compared to transhumanism, which were used recently to manipulate and control the poor. The one defining aspect of both approaches is both see the inevitability of capitalism fall and the possibility of an apocalyptic ending. Their attempts to sustain capitalism would depend on mass organization or resistance to prevent it from succeeding. If we, do, if we don't, the level of oppression will increase exponentially and show a self-fulfilling prophecy of a real apocalypse. So clearly, Brother Africa, this is what's going on behind the scenes. So these people are planning 20, 30, 40, 50 years into the future. We've got to understand that the challenge that we're going to from society is very, very real. And if we don't understand the necessity of the organization and, and, and working together, our situation, situation in our country, the situation in this country becomes that much more prevalent. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. But Brother Haki, you know they have a saying that if you fail to plan, then you plan to fail. So, African, let's get organized. Next, we'll make our transition to Brother Moses, who's a member of the D.C. Metro um, Coalition in solidarity with the Cuban Revolution. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. They tell me repetition is the mother of invention, and so I like to go over something. The God question, essentially Christianity versus Trotskyism. After much consideration, I have decided to criticize a trend within the working class movement for justice and peace. The Zionists deny the truth of Jesus' teachings on internationalism and against the restoration of Israel as advocated by the Zionists of his day. True, many Trotskyites are anti-Zionists in the political struggle. Ideologically, they have not thoroughly broken with Jewish traditions. This is manifested in the anarchy of production of childbirth. The most important decision morally one makes is when and under what conditions one should father or mother another human. Christianity is about defense of the fatherland, i.e., the mother consciously declares who is the father of her child. Like Karl Marx and so many others, the children are labeled with the name of their father. This may seem like a small matter, but communism is a godless ideology and has no morality, only ethics. Professional revolutionaries are concerned with getting the job done, and this is the compass by which behavior is judged. V.I. Lennon pointed out that morality belongs to the era of religion. Marx proclaimed religion to be the opiate of the masses. The materialist knows only human behavior, and there is no God. Jesus lived at a time when answering the God question was vital to human progress. Without a vision, the people perish. Without revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary movement. Jesus tackled the issues and reconciled humans and God. I am the way, the truth, and the light. Wise people recognize the correctness of his position, for it has meaning, especially for the Palestinian people. As Chairman Mao pointed out, the critical contradiction for the international movement of the working class is the national liberation struggle versus imperialism and not the imperialism versus the socialist camp. History has proven the correctness of this view. 
Trotskyism is the ideology threatening the advancement of the communist movement. Interestingly, the greatest defenders of socialism everywhere except where it exists have now generally accepted the existence of socialism and there's that talk of, quote, socialism can't exist in one country, deform worker states, etc. unquote. The attacks on J.B. Stalin and Mao Zedong are a direct result of Trotskyism and played a critical role in the collapse of the Soviet Union. I maintain there is one God, Jesus, and that Mao is his messenger for government. Um, I'd like to say that uh, Trotskyism is the ideology, the theory and tactics of the petty bourgeoisie. The petty bourgeoisie have a certain revolutionary potential because they are oppressed by the, the ruling class but they are incapable of thoroughly leading the struggle in a comprehensive manner. And so we must depend on the proletariat and proletarian ideology. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And from Brother Moses, we'll make our transfer to, we'll make our transition to Sister Eleanor, who is also a member of the D.C. Metro Coalition, in solidarity with the Cuban Revolution. Sister Eleanor, welcome to Africa on the Move. Good evening. Good evening, Brother Africa, fellow panelists, and to our listening audience in the United States of America and abroad. My name is Eleanor Johnson. I'm delighted to be on this evening's show. And I'd like to remind everyone to pay close attention to their actions and the actions of their community concerning global warming, as well as I stand in unity the women and children of the world and um, and um, I'm sorry um, and uh, I just am delighted to be here this evening and thank you so much once again. It's always an honor to have you, my sister. We thank you for participating. Next, we make our transition to uh, Brother Subukwe, and we'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Move as a member of the Pan-African Socialist People, People Party. If I'm not correctly um, misstated that, you can correct me, Brother Subukwe. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Uh, can you hear me? Greetings. Yes, we can. Yeah. Okay, Pan-African greetings, revolutionary greetings. Um, again, my name is Brother Maurice, Brother Shibukwe, uh, member member of, uh, of the PRSP, Pan-African Revolutionary Socialist Party, uh, supporter of the AAPRP, GC, All-African People Revolutionary Party, GC, and more than more than ever, I'm a you know work a worker, a worker of the people. Thank you for having me here tonight. As always, my brother, we thank you for your contribution to our weekly program. To the listening audience, you listen to Brother Africa on Africa on the Move. Like always, our next step forward on this road of liberation, we can discuss what's going on in your world community, and we'd like to invite you to come and join us. And share with us as well what's going on in your world and the community 
And you can do that by dialing 323-679-0841, hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers when we turn. Right now, we're going to take a rubber stair culture break, and we'll be right back to discuss what is going on in your world and the community. This is Africa on the Move. Let's arrest all of them. When I drop the mic, it hit the floor like Thor. That's right. You can't pick it up no more. Only you try. I don't know what it is. Y'all know what it was. Y'all know what it shall be. Get smart before the shit start. Before it get dark. Before they hit you with the pitchfork. Better crib walk. Crip this walk. is real talk. Smoke push and push. Then we peel off. Niggas still running with the wheels off. Always looking out for the crisscross. I'm a bigger boss than Rick Ross. Always winning. Nigga get lost. It's the warlord. Bring the voodoo. When I bail through, it's crazy like Bellevue. What they tell you, leave that boy alone, like home alone, fuck a skull and bone, arrest the president, you got the evidence, that nigga is Russian intelligence, when it rains it pours, did you know the new light was orange, boy, you're showing your horns, they trying to replace my halo with thorns, you so basic with your bait sticks, let's go ape shit in the matrix, arrest the president, arrest the president, arrest the president, you got the evidence. Arrest the president, arrest the president, arrest the president, you got the evidence I took back my eyes, and all black tonight That's right, some niggas gotta sacrifice Not a criminal, No, I'm a seminal I was free once, now I'm clinical You so technical, this was Mexico Now everywhere I go is owned by Texaco Fuck Fuck them and the rest of you I turn a phone to a back hop I'ma roll with the aliens Man, fuck these homo sapiens They don't really wanna make friends All they want is a Mercedes Benz All they want is they dividends and decibels Fuck these citizens They'll treat us like hooligans Throw him in, they don't care what's fully in These people don't play fair It ain't even fair at the state fair Give a young nigga gray hair, that's why I'm here Make your ass lay there You better stay there Close your fucking eyes like a daycare Make myself clearer than Shakespeare I'm here to take money, even fake hair So desperate is what I'm left with For the record, you affected Who you elected, it's so septic So full of shit, I can't accept it Arrest the president, arrest the president Arrest the president, you got the evidence Arrest the president, arrest the president Arrest the president, you got the evidence Arrest the president, arrest the president Arrest the president, you got the evidence Arrest the president, arrest the president, arrest the president, you got the evidence. I reside on the west side, I murder with my third eye, nigga so fly get a bird's eye, I make him scream bloody murder, let's meet at the White House, run in and turn the lights out. Man, they treat it like a trap house yeah. These motherfuckers never take the trash out Damn. They just cash out and mash out Nigga, take your drugs and pass out Niggas love to go that fast route yeah. I see you when your black ass get out Homie, you play too much yeah. Why these devils, they doing way too much Most of them won't say too much Why they steady planning, God knows what That's why I roll with the real ones Real ones, trying to reach millions 
arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Yes, he's my father. Yes, 
He's my son, so I can talk to him Cause he understands everything I go through And everything I am He's my support system I can't live without him The best thing since life's bread Is his kiss, his hug, his lips, his touch And I just want the whole world to know About my black brother I love you
We are featuring the first segment of a two-part segment, a critique of racial capitalism. That's right. You can critique it. So at this point in time, as you continue to travel down this road of liberation, we just want to remind you that you must always remember that without information, you cannot think. And without organization, you can't think clearly. So therefore, if you want to make your proper contribution to humanity, to Mother Africa, and to and in overcoming your various forms of oppression, we ask you to critically think about and act to being organized. You must be organized. So that's our little big message for today. We're going to bring you back with our critical panelists and analysts and you, the listening audience, you can participate on this segment on what's going on in your world and the community by calling in at one three two three six seven nine zero eight four one. Hit one. You will acknowledge your last four numbers. So we want to hear from you. What's going on in your world and the community right now? And to start us off, we're going to Brother Haki. And Brother Haki, share with us what's going on in your world and the community. Hmm. Yeah, well, first, Brother Africa, let me just uh, express my condolences for the passing of Sister Sinead O'Connor in terms of, you know, her uh, her, her vision in terms of one as a nonconformist. Uh, I really respect and admire the way, despite the pressure that came up, came down upon her to conform, she was her own individual. She's an individual and free thinker. And so for that, you know, uh, you know, uh, the world should be very, very grateful in terms of, you know, her, her time here on the earth. I just wanted to throw it out there. Uh, what I want to talk about, Brother Africa, is that, you know, um, recently, you know, uh, three to four Newburgh four was released from prison by Judge uh, Colleen McMahon. And now for those who don't recall, this is a case in which these, these, uh, these older brothers, these older brothers, uh, many of which who were so, uh, psychologically, emotionally fragile, uh, were charged with ter- terrorism offenses. And clearly, uh, this is all contrived. In fact, one of, uh, one of the people that was responsible for creating that, uh, creating that, uh, that uh, perception that these people, that these individuals are actually guilty, was an individual by the name of um, Shaheed Hussein, who was a, co- a corrupt uh, criminal Pakistani. Uh, con man uh, who the FBI used in terms of, you know, in order for him to get out of his own uh, legal uh, uh, problems, uh, he agreed to work with the FBI to set up these, essentially these very fragile or older uh, black gentlemen for the purpose in terms of showcasing the, the supposedly uh, uh, the problem in terms of, uh, of terrorism or potential terrorism in American society, particularly as it relates to, to Islamic terrorism. So clearly these brothers were set up, but thankfully the judge, uh, you know, was very, very honest in terms of liberation, and she called on the FBI in terms of the shenanigans, in terms of what they did, uh, in terms of setting up these individuals. Now, these individuals have no way, in no shape, of, had the capabilities in terms of, uh, of you know, having access to missiles, you know, and to explosive materials. It just didn't happen. Uh, so clearly, but what I find fascinating is that given that reality, uh, that you have grand juries who are willing to in, to essentially agree that these individuals should be indicted, despite the fact that when you look at the evidence, I mean, it's, 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 it's ludicrous in terms of thinking that, you know, these um, these very indigent individuals, you know, with a very problematic lifestyle, you know, are somehow capable in terms of even thinking on a, on a grand level in terms of mis- you know, access to missile technology 
or explosives for the purposes of uh, uh, taking planes out of the sky or bombing Jewish synagogues in the Bronx. Uh, so clearly, so clearly for me, brother Africa, it's just amazing, you know, um, that uh, people are so gullible in terms of you know the state the state apparatus. If they can tell people pretty much anything they tend to believe, and I find that extraordinary. There's an old saying, uh, a grand Jewish would indict a ham sandwich, and that's very, very true. And one of the things when you think about in terms of the propensity for the state to lie, uh, you would think that more people will be cognizant of that potentiality, and, would, when, and when they see that in cases, will vote not to, to proceed with charges. In other words, why isn't more Jewish uh, utilizing um, Jewish notification in terms of when you see the government is essentially engaged in criminal activity in terms of, you know, uh, indicting, you know, uh, innocent people for the sole purpose of making political statements. So clearly this case sort of highlights in terms of their propensity in terms of people to essentially go along whatever the state tells them, uh, regardless of the facts. So clearly, Brother Africa, I think this is very, very problematic. And so that they, one of the things I would hope is that as time goes on, more and more people begin to take their responsibility as part of jurors. Much more seriously, when the government comes up with uh, with uh, cases which are which are problematic based upon based upon evidence and based upon reasoning, that people will have the gumption to actually uh, sign on to jury notification and say no 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 I won't participate in that game I won't have innocent people go to prison something because it serves a political objective. So clearly, Brother Africa, I was very very just it's very very uh, unfortunate kind of case, but nonetheless these kind of cases happen all the time in America. And uh, clearly, you know, uh, without jury notification, there's no, there's no possibility of these kind of cases actually coming to an end. And I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. We'll make our transition next to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community? Certainly. Um What's going on is the fact that um, as um, the forces of imperialism get more repressive, the resistance to it is also getting better organized uh, day by day, uh, particularly in uh, Central and South America and uh, even at home in Africa. Uh, let's see, and uh, and uh, the resistance is intensifying, and the struggle is intensifying as well. And uh, uh, that's it for right now, pretty much, in terms of what's going on in my world. That sounds good to us, Brother Anthony. Let's continue to travel down this road of liberation by bringing in Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, you know, the big thing this week was our birthday. Our brother Africa had a birthday this week. That was a big thing. Um, I think, um, meanwhile, you know, um, um, I think I said last last week, um, Donald Trump said, you know, we love oil. Syria's got oil. We're going to take the oil. Instead of we're in Syria stealing oil, a sovereign country, we are violating. Um, also, um, okay, some of the unions had had, um, had negotiated on some tentative agreements uh, 
uh, that look good for the unions in terms of um, looking out for the interests of the workers. And that was good this week. Um, um, let's see, what else? That, uh, oh, yeah, he said Sinead O'Connor. That was nothing compares to you. That was my song uh, for my ex-wife. Um, but, um, yeah, she died. That was a Prince cover. Uh, and um, and um, so I definitely mourn her passing. Uh, I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. Uh, condolences go to you, Brother Moses, and um, and your loved ones, and we um, ask you to hang in there, brother. We're going to be here for you. So right now, we're going to make our transition from Brother Moses to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, talk to us. What's going on in your world and the community? Sister Eleanor. Well, as Brother Moses said, it's your birthday. So that was a big thing for um, everyone. I believe it was uh, the 27th. Um, And I would like to say happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Mother Africa. Happy birthday to you. That was one of the big things. The other thing is an event tomorrow night in the District of Columbia. Um, there's going to be, uh, well, today there was a, a Daniel Ellsberg Memorial, and this is all about uh, exposing uh, what you call whistleblowers, real whistleblowers. And that was being held this evening uh, at 6 p.m. at the National Press Club. But what's really happening is the Covert Action Magazine Symposium is going to be highlighting whistleblowers and sanction issues on Monday, July 31st from 3 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. at Bus Boys and Poets, 450 K Street Northwest. Uh, there's going to be a panel discussion and fundraiser is a $30 contribution at the door. And that's in Washington, D.C., Washington, the District of Columbia. And, of course, there continues to be a vigil at Merrick Garland's house, Um, and that's every first and third Sunday of the month from 4 to 5 p.m., and that's in the 5,000 block of Edgemore Lane, Bethesda, Maryland, two blocks from the Bethesda Metro. And uh, and we believe in free press. That's something good to mark your calendar and and, uh, no doubt. Also, uh, we saw the continued struggle for um, migrants uh, seeking refuge from the environmental disaster occurring across Africa, the African Sahel, and uh, the resistance from the EU in allowing both Africans and Asians to migrate there. And that's a, a real issue. And uh, the other issue is this whole move about oil 
and how um, Donald Trump's move about oil, and we have plenty of oil, and he's going to use it. And that's his goal. Uh, and that's uh, that's it. So I continue to be concerned about the environment and environmental issues as well as education. And it's interesting to note that the District of Columbia um, DMV continues to be um, a major hub of human trafficking and it's mainly of Africans born in the United States that often refer to themselves as African-American girls, children, I'm speaking of, and women. And that's a really an unspoken story, but that's a real reality. And something new is expected to happen. Usually you never even see their faces on these Amber Alerts. But uh, a sister has raised money to have her own Amber Alert focus on at least three women and children per board. And that, I don't know how long they they stay, but that's an interesting um, event that will focus on uh, stopping this horrific crime from happening, and it's because of our uh, lack of respect, as Malcolm X said, of uh, these women in America. And he said he knew it because no one treated them worse, and even he did. So we really have to think about that as a domestic problem in the United States of America and to begin to ask ourselves as African people, community that recognizes women and children, babies and girls as worthy of our love, protection, and attention and that we'll focus on how our children and how culturally acceptable it is, the sexualization of our children because of the way they look and their bodies. And that's it. I think we really need to change our attitude towards Mother Earth and towards women and children. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Next, we make a transition to... Brother Sibukwe, what's going on in your world and the community? Brother Sibukwe. Yes. Yes. Happy birthday, Brother Africa, man. And got a gift coming to you. Stand back. Um, I just want to share that uh, a lot of things is going on in in our world, in the African world. Uh, Recently, Ghana uh, voted to remove the death penalty. in their country in the form of hanging and firing um, squads. Um, The article stated out of the Washington Post that 170 nations have abolished or introduced uh, a moratorium on the death penalty. 50 countries remain with having death penalties, including the United States here, the United Snakes of America, 
China, Saudi, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, and North Korea. Ghana is the 29th African nation to abolish death penalties, following Chad, Burkina Faso, Guinea, and Zambia. Uh, last but not least, Ghana had 172 men and women on death row in a prison population over 15,000. Um, and Ghana had no execution since 1993. That's some of that might sound good, you know, but we still have thousands, if not millions, of Africans uh, around the world and a continent dying surrounding surrounding Ghana. But this is. I guess somewhat of a start, maybe the United Snakes of America uh, can take the same approach and abolish the death penalty. Uh, another thing I want to piggyback off of, of Sister Eleanor, yes, we have to hold up our sisters, our women, our mothers and daughters. Uh, recently in, in the world, uh, it's been a lot of, it's, it's been a lot of, um, back and forth over the sister Carly Russell, who quote-unquote uh, basically stated that she lied about her about herself being kidnapped, uh, lied about seeing a baby on the highway and being, uh, after, you know, being kidnapped by, by men or what have you. Um, she may lie, and she may have with mental health issues, but what she also is doing is bringing light. We should take the time when you hear the name Carly Russell if also uh hear the other names of our sisters, um one name in particular in the Congo, Hano uh Hano Nada Kazinda. Um she was married with seven children, lived in uh Shibunda, excuse excuse my um English, on the eastern part of the Congo. She was a teacher abducted with other women and girls by neo colonial soldiers. She was raped over and over again and beaten over and over again. Her teeth was knocked out of her mouth. She was held captive, captured for 15 months. The soldiers, you know, also raped pregnant women that was also kidnapped alongside her. And the soldiers uh, was controlled by, you guessed it, no other than the, weft, the wealthy commercial capitalist Western powers outside of Africa. So when we talk about Kylie Russell, and uh, she, whether if she lied about this, you know, and, 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 and you know, it, it's it's you know it, it is not good because we have a lot of African women, a lot of women uh, kidnapped: Tiffany Foster, Felicia, uh, Felicia Cochran, Latisha Coleman, Latasha Coleman, Jessica Halbert, uh, Janiah Duffy, Tishay Jacobs in my hometown of Richmond, Virginia; Ariana Peaches Davis also in my hometown. The list goes on and on. And I understand, you know, Carly Russell is, is being the butt of everybody's jokes on social media, but please, I would urge listeners and, and, and people who are having, you know, taking it, taking it through the ring to just be mindful of the others, use this time, use her story to bring attention to all our other sisters around the world who are dying at the hands. All of these sisters are victims of capitalism, as far as I, I am concerned. Because the capitalist system uh, regurgitates and, and, and promotes a system that uh, allows women to be raped over and over, girls to be raped, allows uh, United Nations uh, soldiers to rape African women, whether it's in the Caribbean, whether it's in that continent, 
they allow uh, police officers in the United States of America to rape African women. Like the African, I mean, I'm sorry, like the cop got, a, uh, he got locked up, I'm assuming, in Texas for raping many African women. And these African women that I named tonight, whose stories are not really being told uh, throughout the mainstream media, there's no, there's no attention on it. So thank you, Brother Africa. Happy birthday to you. And thanks again for allowing me to share what's going on in the, in our world on Africa on the Move. Thank you, Brother Subukwe, as always, for your contribution to our program. I'd like to thank all of y'all who acknowledge my birthday, Earth Day, and my friends and supporters. And um, sometimes not too bad to share some flowers and give yourself some flowers. So what we're going to do is, for those who like to give me some flowers, you can um, cash up it. Cash up your flowers to me. By dollar sign, capital L, small e, small e. Small C, small R, small O, small B, or just call the brother or email the brother at Africa on the Move and just share me your love. I would greatly appreciate it. So what we're going to do right now, this is the first part of a two-part series, a critique of racial capitalism. What we're going to do, we're going to acknowledge my birthday briefly through the song, and after the song, you will hear a critique, a documentary on how the elite control the world. This is a prelude. It complements this whole discussion that we're going to have as it relates to racial capitalism. But when we come back, we will ask our panelists and analysts and we'll ask you, the listening audience, to join in as we discuss this segment today on how the elite control the world. This is Africa the Move, and we all would like to wish everyone who had a birthday, happy birthday, and this song is for you.
Well, we have talked today about students beginning their careers. We've talked about correspondents ending their careers. We've talked about the names A.J. Liebling and I.F. Stone have come up. Uh, one of the things I most admire about the profession is it has allowed some people to say what they mean and to uh, stand by it, to live by it. Uh, Louis Lapham, uh, editor of Harper's, uh, was described in yesterday's <clears throat> New York Observer as America's favorite grouchy magazine editor. I don't, I don't think of him that way. I think of him as an iconoclast. I think of him as a trenchant observer, someone who says exactly what, he's, what he means and says it extremely well, and someone who provokes me uh, and sometimes elucidates, sometimes provokes. But I think that's the very best tradition of uh, American journalism. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Louis Lapham. I'm uh, delighted to be here. I see many friends in the room, and I'm sorry I didn't get the piece out of Mr. Frank. The, uh, but uh, I, was, I thought I was going to come and talk to a very small lunch and tell old stories about the days when I was a foreign correspondent and so forth, but Bill persuaded me to talk about the uh, new American ruling class, which is... Uh, subject to which I, and how does journalism fit into the new order. So I'm not a Marxist and I'm not a revolutionary. I'm sometimes, I'm not even a grouch, but the, <laughs> I know that the, the word class arouses suspicion and uneasiness in an American audience and I have no objection to a ruling class. No country can exist without a ruling class. That was true in uh, Rome in the first century. That was true in the United States in 1787. That was true in Britain at the zenith of empire, and it's true now. So the only question in my mind is what kind of a ruling class, uh, what, what's, the na what's its nature, what, what, what's the character, and what's its worth made to what specifications, and with what uh, passions or objectives in mind. And it, it seems to me that the American uh, ruling class or governing class or possessing class, whatever you want to call it, my favorite term for it is equestrian class because that is an old Roman term. The rank was for sale for 400,000 sesterces in, in Rome in the first century AD. And the, and, and the governing class in America is it's a rank that is for sale. That's also always been true in the United States. But something has happened to that class over the last 50 years, I think. I think it is no longer a specifically American class. I, I think it's lost its interest in politics. And I don't think it has much use uh, for an intelligent press. And you will now will ask me, who are we talking about? And the figures vary, and numbers of other writers have written on this subject. Bill Greider's written about it, Kevin Phillips, Christopher Lash, Michael Lind. Essentially, what we're talking about is that one or two percent of the American population that owns 90 percent of the nation's wealth and 75% of its capital assets. It's an oligarchy. Uh, it's not a large percentage, but it's a fairly large 
absolute number. I mean, maybe we're talking about two million people, perhaps. Uh, essentially, these are the people who write the laws, who write the news, who run the schools, direct the corporations, uh, own the media, own, and own the banks. Uh, the rich and the servants of the rich. Lind, Michael Lind, in his book that he published last uh, summer called The American Nation, uh, refers to what he calls the Donor Party. The Donor Party is the group of no more than 200,000 people in the United States who give political campaign gifts in excess of $5,000. To become a candidate, you must be first elected by the donor party. That is the beginning and end of the American democracy. It's 200,000 people. Because if you don't have money, you, you don't, unless you're Steve Forbes or Perot, you have no, you, you don't even appear on television. The, another way of describing the, the, uh, the oligarchy or the equestrian class would be to just think of the shoppers on Madison Avenue or Rodeo Drive or the residents of the zip code section in New York, uh, in New York, New York 10021, which is this narrow golden rectangle in the city of Manhattan, where the annual income is something like $2 billion a year income within that one zip code section. Another way to think of it would be the way that the public broadcasting network thinks of it, which is... Um, I did a book show on television for a couple of years for PBS, and there, the, the PBS number, which is like the Harper's number, for the total universe of Americans that, is, that makes the market for the trade list of the New York Times, books uh, for magazines like Harper's, The New Yorker, Foreign Affairs, for the uh, documentaries that appear on PBS, for most of the leading policy journals and so forth, we're talking about no more than two million people, if that many. That's the whole universe. Now, the people that uh, essentially live within that universe, um, run the schools, own the banks, write the laws, and so forth, um, it's the view from the box seats. And the first thing that's changed in the last 50 years is the sense of responsibility. I believe, maybe I'm a romantic, but I do believe that 50 years ago, this class felt some degree of responsibility toward the lower orders. There was a sense that privilege entailed obligation there was, the attitude was derived in part from the attitude of the British ruling class, the late part of the 19th century, from whom we, the Americans, picked up the white man's burden in the direction of Rudyard Kipling, who wrote that poem, as a matter of fact, as a campaign speech for Teddy Roosevelt. But that attitude was also confirmed by the American victories in World War II. And I, I happen to have been thinking a great deal about this subject lately because I am writing a book about the social and intellectual history of Yale University over the second half of the American century, the 1950 to the year 2000. 
The American century, as you know, is a phrase coined by Henry Luce, Yale, 1919, uh, former chairman of the Yale Daily News and so forth. And the whole sense of American empire, American primacy, American supremacy, American obligation is very much in place it, at Yale in the 1950s, which is when I was there as an undergraduate. And several of the professors in both the English department and the history department were recruiters for the CIA. The sense that the, of a, uh, a noble mission of bringing the uh, light to a darkened world, uh, the careers, was very much part of the milieu. And Yale then, as Yale now, is in the business of making the American equestrian class. That is why one pays $26,000, $27,000 a year to send a child to either Yale, Harvard, Princeton, or the other universities that do this sort of thing. Um, the people at, at, uh, in the 50s identified themselves with an, inter with an American commonwealth. There was um, an American ideal. There was an American idea. There was a sense of obligation. I don't think that the current um, kids, the, the ones that I know at New Haven, <coughs> or the, our current uh, oligarchy has the same feeling at all. I think that the members of the American equestrian class today incline to think of themselves as uh, align themselves with an international economic order rather than an American commonwealth. There's very little patriotism in, in this among the people that I'm talking about. They have more in common with their peers, uh, their economic peers, in England, Japan, or Germany than they do with their, with a run-of-the-mill Americans in Omaha or Sioux City. And it, you see it in the character of somebody like Richard Nixon, who was very much at home with the Shah of Iran or Ferdinand Marcos or Noriega, people of that. Those are the kind of people that he liked, could talk to, understood the uh, deep fear and hatred of the ordinary American citizen. Um, corporations, American corporations today receive much, if not most, of their income from abroad. Coca-Cola no, no longer has a domestic division. Uh, it's a world company, and the, uh, so they're not thinking in terms of, the, uh, of an American nationalist uh, economics. A lot of this, you, this is also obviously true of the movie industry, uh, which without foreign sales uh, cannot afford to pay the kinds of salaries they now pay. It's also true of our um, banking industries and airlines and so on. So it's an international economic uh, world order. And, and this is very clear. This is, I sound like Buchanan, but Buchanan is right in this. I, I don't think this is a matter of opinion. I think this is a matter of sheer statistics that you can see it with uh, NAFTA. You can see it 
in any number of ways. You, uh, I saw it most clearly uh, the year that the Challenger exploded. The six months after the Challenger exploded, AT&T and GE were called to testify before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee because the Cold War was still going on and AT&T and GE had decided to send up their newest satellite on a Soviet rocket. It was the only rocket going and the Foreign Relations Committee took, took, took this very seriously and said you can't do this, this is trading with the enemy and so on, this is our most sophisticated technology and so forth and so on. And the, the two corporations said, we really don't care what you think, Senator, it, it's not important because this is about money. And if we don't send it up on the Russian rocket, we're going to lose to the French. We can't afford to lose to the French. And you could make the speech to, you know, your friends at the Council on Foreign Relations, but no and goodbye. Um, another way of looking at the um, increasing isolation of the American equestrian order is in the move to the suburbs. That's everybody, a lot of other people have written about that, but we now have a country that is becoming increasingly feudal in its organization. We have uh, the United States spends $20 billion a year on public law enforcement that includes all forms of public law enforcement. City, county, sheriffs, FBI, Justice Department, and so forth. We spend $40 billion on private law enforcement. Again, it's the, the retreat from the public realm. Privatization of everything. The private is, is, 50 years ago, the notion of the public sector, the public sphere, the public commonwealth would have connoted a good. Today, in most uh, usages, the word public connotes filth, squalor, incompetence, bad housing, fool politicians, and leaking drains, and so forth. And the word private is associated with the clear trout streams of Colorado and all good things flow from the private sector as opposed to the public sector. That is a, something that has happened in, in, in 50 years. Another, another way you see the uh, withdrawing is the sense of, the American sense of humor. 50 years ago, most of the jokes, or many of the jokes, were the have-nots making fun of the haves. This was the humor of Mencken, this was the humor of the movies of the 30s, this was the humor of the New Yorker in, in, in the 30s and so on. Today it's reversed. The humor is the haves making fun of the have-nots. It's the humor of the David Letterman show, it's the humor of P.J. O'Rourke, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the humor of the uh, hip movies of uh, Quentin Tarantino. I happen to find it very repellent, but nevertheless, it is the, the uh, tone that's in place. Second thing that's happened in the last 50 years, and corollary to what I'm talking about at, in terms of the character of the American equestrian class, is the absence of interest in history or politics.
<coughs> the, uh, one would have expected circa 1950, 1955, even as late as 1960, that the uh, people who enjoyed economic privilege would also be interested in the history of the United States, uh, interested in the intellectual content of the media, of newspapers. I went to work at uh, the New York Herald Tribune in 1960, which was the paper then owned by John A. Whitney, a leading Republican uh, presence in, in New York and on that wing of the Republican Party. And he, his ownership of the Tribune at the time was in the line of Pulitzer, who was the Democrat, or Greeley, who was a Republican, or even Colonel McCormick of the Chicago papers, who was extreme, what we would today call extreme right. But Whitney's interest was primarily uh, an a political one. He had, a, he had an idea, he had a political idea. And the ownership of the, of the papers reflected that. Uh, they no longer do. I mean, now you would not associate, I would not uh, associate uh, the corporations that own the networks or that own the big, or the Disney company or whatever the big media syndicates are with a political idea. I'd associate them with an economic idea, uh, with the new international economic world order, yes, but with a with an idea that uh, that somehow politics mattered, I wouldn't think so. And, and you can see that uh, uh, in the newspapers this morning. The front page of the Times today talks about the money likely to flow to the Democrat and Republican candidates for the House in next November's election. And clearly the lines are the same lines as, as Dwayne Andreas, uh, the head of ADM who gives with the left hand to the Democrat and to the right hand with the Republican because it really doesn't matter. Uh, there, there is only, in, in my view and lots of other people's view, there's only one political party in the United States at the moment. And the point is power. The point is to be have connection, to have access to uh, the committee or to the tax legislation or to the telecommunications bill or it, it, it has very little to do with with ideas that is again a change I think over the last 50 years um, you see this it's uh, at on the stage at Yale University you no longer can study uh, political history of uh, American political history there are something called cultural studies so the historic, the American, the telling of the American tale has been broken down into telling of the black American tale or the feminist American tale or the ethnic Native American American tale and so forth and so on. And you can go through the entire, uh, you can take uh, as the, uh, there is no curriculum that went in the 60s, but you, in, order, in order to satisfy the requirement for late 18th century history in the United States, you can take it in uh, domestic pewter, butter churns, uh, the plight of women on the frontier, and so forth. All interesting subjects, but, but uh, not a coherent historical um, view. All right, if, if, if I'm 
correct then in the two uh, points about the American equestrian class over the last 50 years, point one being the, the feeling of no responsibility toward the less fortunate, and uh, two, the absence of interest in either uh, history or politics as, as a passionate interest. Then what then becomes the, uh, the function of the press? And the, again, the, the parallels to me are very similar. When I first started working for the newspapers, I, my first job was as a newspaper reporter for the San Francisco Examiner in 1957, a Hearst newspaper. And I was the only uh, Ivy League person in the entire place. To use the word journalist was, would have been, uh, nobody used the word journalist. Only Englishmen and fops used the word journalist. <laughs> Americans used the word uh, reporter or newspaper man. Uh, nobody was paid any money event to speak of, and nobody expected to make any money. I mean, there was, one did not go into uh, newspaper reporting to become rich. One came in for probably in my case romantic ideas growing out of the uh, depression and out of the autobiographies of novelists on the order of John O'Hara and Ernest Hemingway but the notion was to somehow get at the truth and tell a story it's a romantic notion but the uh, there was uh, and we tended as, as, as newspaper guys to identify with the people in the bleachers not with the people in the box seat. And that changed in the middle 60s. By 1967, um, the, the ranks of, the, uh, of uh, the newspaper, what was the newspaper business, begins to fill up with people from Harvard and Yale and Princeton. The salaries begin to go up to $300,000, $400,000 a year for television personalities. And the identification shifts from the uh, the crowd in the bleachers to the swells in the box seats. And I now think that's where we are. I think we now have, by and large, present company accepted, a courtier press. A, a, uh, I think of most of the major uh, news persons in the United States, and I think of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet. The idea that somebody like Bob Woodward is presented as an investigative journalist is a joke that can only be appreciated by somebody who remembers uh, what, the, what investigative journalism was. And, and the, uh, I turned down, the, as the editor of Harper's Magazine, <coughs> all the president's men in 19, whatever it was, 73, because there's not a single name source. And I mean, I'm, I said... <laughs> Okay, that's gossip stuff, that's great, but that's not what I learned as a, as a journalist. <laughs> and most of, his, most of what now, or much of what now passes for um, big-time journalism is that kind of whisper gossip. The dying Bill Casey of parts in my shell-like ear. The truth about Iran-Contra, etc., etc. Or in the, as in the Halberstam's book, The Best and the Brightest, not a single name source. 
conversations all invented and reconstructed. It passes in, in, in a world that doesn't care about history uh, as truth. The, um, or as, as, uh, as entertainment. And I, I don't have to dwell on all of that. I mean, but as the, in, in, uh, in 1960, there was still something called the newspaper business, literature, theater, movies. By 1970, all of those what were once discrete disciplines have been fused into a, something called media. Um, we, you know, as the politicians become less responsible and light-minded, so do uh, so do uh, our journalists. So does our journalism. I mean, to go back to the uh, the Roman example, uh, when uh, at the zenith of Rome's military power, the returning general would um, have a triumph through the streets of Rome, standing in the chariot, and behind him would come the train of captured slaves. And, elephants, trophies, and so forth. And, but they would stand behind his shoulder in a chariot. They would stand behind his shoulder. There would be a man who would say, remember, you are mortal. Today, our journalists, we are now at the zenith of our economic power. Um, the wonder of an admiring world in, in many different ways. And we ride in, in triumph through the streets of New York or Washington or London, and our media stands behind, behind us in, in the chariot and says, know that you are a god. <laughs> and, and that's the, you know, essentially that's the cover of Fortune magazine or the, you know, the worship of Bill Gates. And so it's a very dangerous attitude, I think. I think we have a less and less grasp of reality. We now have a country in which the ratio between what the CEO of a corporation makes and the lowest paid assembly worker or clerk in the same company, the ratio is 184 to 1. And even as recently as 20 years ago, the ratio was, the ratio was 15 to 1, which is what it is in France, England, and Japan. And that kind of, um, I've run out of time, I'm sorry, I've run too long, but, but that given that kind of uh, world of wish, reverie, dream, uh, the public relations man who's sometimes difficult to tell from the Washington columnist standing behind you in the chariot and whispering in your ear that you're a god, given that, I, I, I can't think of a more uh, necessary corrective uh, than uh, both the art and craft of journalism. And I'm proud to be associated with people who also believe that and with the six uh, young people who I hope will sharpen their pencils and go out and do battle in the uh, coming days. Thank you. Listen to a documentary in which you can find on in the social media on YouTube. How the elite control the world. And listen to this particular 
archival piece on YouTube. And speaking to the theme for this first part of the two-part series, a critique of racial capitalism. This is like a backdrop which we will discuss this whole question of racial capitalism next week, but this is a backdrop to it. Is I just wondering, you know, that if this particular um, speaker was a victim of a slogan by Robert Kennedy, would he once stated, he who rides the tiger back also ends up inside of him. That's right. He who rides the tiger back also ends up inside of him. Has anything changed in terms of the dynamics and the contradictions that you spoke to from the beginning of the development of Western democracy, Western so-called investments in this whole world of economic activities? Has anything really fundamentally changed? Why would anybody believe in the concept of American socialism and want and, and to be American? It sounds to me what you describe has always been consistent with myth, lies, and deception. So I'm just wondering, panelists, if you can get our listening audience your perspective on the backdrop of what you took from this issue of how the elite control the world. Then, how they control it now. And recently, I've just read some statistics about how much money the U.S. government dropped in the incarceration industry that can be made. And that amount of money they invest in the industry dealing with incarceration was over $80 billion. Understanding the values and principles of capitalism, when they start making that kind of money with that kind of machinery, is that too much to force them not to do right and be just? So I'm just interested, panelists, for today's program. This is the first part of a two-part series, a critique, a, a critique of racial capitalism in terms of how the elite control the world. Your response for tonight to that particular narration that you just heard. We'll start off with you, Brother Haki. Your thoughts on what you just heard. <clears throat> yeah, well, on some points, I can I agree with what you said. What the what the individual was saying, and on other points I was sort of confounded. But in any event, and to the extent that when he talked about you know the ruling class, you know um, you know hostile to the media, I think that is very very true. I think certainly when you talk about this, when you talk about a situation where you got an over concentration of wealth, uh, clearly the narrative the narrative uh, or the potential narrative for media has to be such that it's in line with the interests of the people who are the most powerful in society. So in that sense, uh, clearly uh, the ruling class is going to be very hostile to a media in terms of the poten- its potential to present a, a much broader, much more precise uh, uh, narrative 
terms of just, you know, the kind of policies that the wealth endorsed, the kind of benefits accrued to the wealth to the extent that it, it undermines the overall economic economy of the state. So certainly a, a, a large amount of hostility by the ruling class is going to be uh, projected against uh, the media. So, so certainly I would understand that. Uh, you know, also, you know, one of the things is that, you know, when you, when you talk about the, you know, the, the oligarchy, and we talk about essentially two million people, and we talk about the over-concentration of wealth, and we got to understand one of the things that when you talk about or when you think about economic policy in, in, in the capitalist society, this kind of over-concentration of wealth is just inevitable. I mean, it's not a, it's not a mistake. It's, it's all by design. So when you look at the situation, when you talk about access to capital, access to money, and when you, get, when you systematically got a system in place to ensure that not only uh, the very wealthy have access, you know, to that to that money, but also they have access to use that money in ways in which they in which they prosper immensely. Uh, when you talk about interest rates uh, that are favorable to wealthy people, uh, you know, when you talk about wealthy people in all their investments, uh, certainly when you talk about you know relatively low interest rates to acquire assets and then taking those same assets and selling them out. And you talk about tremendous amount of earnings, you know, for people who are positions of power or that 2 million people or oligarch, as you talked about. So nobody should be surprised when we talk about in terms of this over-concentration of in American society. It's indicative of the way capitalism works. So nobody should be surprised about that. And, of course, when you talk about the donor class, you talk about over 200,000 people, you know, who, who, who give to, to politicians to do their bidding. I think, I think most people would understand, you know, that when you look at the, the, the political structure in American society, whether you're talking about Democrats or Republicans, they're all beholden to, to, to the money. In, in fact, the system is designed to make sure that in order for you to run, that the likelihood of you succeeding in terms of gaining office uh, is virtually nil if you don't appeal to the wealthy for money, because it takes money in terms of ads. It takes money in terms of visibility. It takes money. And certainly, one of the things you have to do to have access to the money is toe the line of the very rich and powerful in terms of, you know, as a politician. So as a consequence, the needs and aspirations of the masses of people never gets addressed because the masses, the masses of African, the masses of people don't have access to large sums of money. So therefore, in the minds of politicians, you're, 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 what you have to say is really not important simply because you don't have any means in terms of rewarding politicians, you know, for taking a stand on your behalf. So clearly the systematic whole is very, very corrupt. Now, certainly one of the things you know, I, I disagree with, though, you know, um, when he talks about the system that's less responsive to the needs of the poor over the last 50 years. But I think that when you look at the fact in terms of the Constitution, the Constitution has always been indifferent to the, to the, to the lives of the poor. It's always been. It's, 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 it's designed specifically for that. When it talks about the, the rights of the, of, of, the, of the minority, in other words, when they talk about the rights of, of people, of a small, small group of white men who own all the money and property, they're not talking about the needs or, or needs or aspirations of the masses of people. That is indeed inconsequential. What they're concerned about in terms of the wealth getting as much wealth as they possibly can, can obtain, at the same token, accruing much as much power as they possibly can attain. It has nothing. The country has nothing about in terms of providing for the needs uh, of the masses of people, or even to acknowledge that the masses of people suffer in the society. So on that point, you know, I, 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 I had a fundamental disagreement in, 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 in terms of that. You know, one of the things also, I think, when you talk about in terms of needs of poor people, you know, one of the things that often when the needs of poor people are addressed is normally in, in, in conjunction with <coughs> the needs of the system itself. 
For instance, uh, when we talk about the New Deal doing FDR's reign, uh, the New Deal came about not because they were altruistic or they give a damn about poor people. They recognized that with the multitude of poor people, they represented a fundamental threat to the system itself. And so what they did is they created an opportunity to make sure, make sure they could spread some of their wealth to, to working people, uh, not because they gave a damn about them, but they understand that they can nullify a potential threat by giving a few, a little, a few dollars to the masses of pe- working people out there you know, who are poor and suffering. Now, keep in mind, when we talk about FDR's you know, uh, a New Deal, keep in mind, Blacks, Africans were excluded from that New Deal. In other words, your access to homes, access to jobs, access to, access to, to, to bank loans at low interest rates, that was excluded from African people across the board. It was also excluded from poor white folks in Appalachia. So clearly, uh, so this concern in terms of, Af- of poor people uh, was, was, uh, was not a primary concern. It was a secondary concern to the extent that these people represent a fundamental threat to the, to, the, to, the, uh, to the longevity of a capitalist system. So therefore, in that context, they had to do something in terms of appeasing those people to make sure they don't turn out against those, the capitalist system in terms of revolution. Uh, and also, you know, one of the things, you know, when we talk about in terms of the annoying amount of power that the wealth en- enjoy in society, keep in mind, you know, and when we talk about, you know, the propensity for war, and, and when you think about the United States, you know, out of, two, out of 230 years of existence, it's been at war for 222 years. And that's not coincidence. That has everything to do with the fact that war is not about the empowerment of poor people. War is about the empowerment of the wealthy people. In other words, you create a situation in which, you know, uh, literally you use poor people to go to wars around the world, fight this war, take over those countries, undermine their economies, take their resources, and then you can say, well, listen, uh, you know, what you give the poor people is, 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 is sense of satisfaction by telling them, oh, well, you did a good thing. You went off to war. You know, you killed some people, and you're good, and you're very patriotic, and we support you for your endeavor. But what they won't say or what they won't acknowledge is that, you know, those, 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 those 222 years of wars did absolutely nothing for the masses of people in the society, particularly for poor people in society. So it's incumbent upon poor people, per se, to understand that, you know, this just going off the war, you know, for, you know, uh, for, for capitalism is not in their own best interest. Also, I think I agree with him, and I conclude with this. When he talked about the fact that the rejection of historical and political narrative is, is commonplace over the last 50 years, I agree. It has to be. When you stop and think about, in terms of when you adequately look at uh, uh, the, uh, the, the situation as it exists in America, one of the things you don't want to do is give a complete, in terms of historically, how America evolved, how it actually operates. So in that context, it makes sense for those in the ruling class. When they, so when they talk about you know, academic disciplines, it makes sense for them to divide African history from women's history, from immigrant history, because if you give an overall uh, view of history, in, including all of those elements of history, then it gives a more conclusive picture in terms of just how fucked up America is in terms of how it abuses and uses the people, uh, you know, for economic gain for the top 1% of the population at the expense of all others. So clearly, the sort of historical political narrative, of course, is going to be slanted. They're not going to tell the truth. I mean, it's just, just the, that's the core reality. And also, I think, you know, one of the things is that, you know, um, when, you, when you talk about in terms of the personalities who occupy, you know, these, 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 these news media uh, uh, op- uh, firms, you understand that he talked about the fact that historically, you know, you had people who identify with people, you know, rank and file. But as time go on in the 70s, then you have a situation where 
uh, the news, news media stopped, got rid of all such those people, started bringing people from Harvard, Princeton, Ivy Leagues. And in addition to bringing them in, they also gave them higher salaries. And the reason they did that was very, very simple. You had people who were conditioned to, to, to believe that the ruling class ideology was the only ruling was the only ideology that actually had any relevance. In that sense, they were beholden to a ruling class ideology, which respected which was reflected in terms of how they wrote the articles or the kind of narratives that they, they put forth. Also, when we talk about high salaries, keep in mind high salaries is a simple way in terms of in terms of um, encouraging people to see and think a certain way. So as long as you see and think a certain way, as long as your narrative or the service that you write identifies with the with the elites, then you were safe. You were assured not only in terms of visibility, but you were assured of a higher salary, which kept you in line. And so therefore, you wouldn't do anything, you wouldn't even think about exposing the truth, because exposing the truth means that that higher salary will not only be taken away, but you'll probably lose your job as well. And so clearly, I, on that point, I, I, I agree. And I think finally, Brother Africa, I think when we talk about the the, the, merge, the, merge, the, merge, the emergence of news and entertainment, you know, coming together, uh, nobody should be surprised. Not only in the capitalist society, it's all about it's all about it's all about it's all about money. But more importantly, when we talk about the decline of, of a capitalist society, uh, news becomes potentially a very very deadly a very very very, very deadly uh, uh, aspect. You know of of you know of of of, of, the, of society, and so therefore in that context, what you don't want to do is have news come with a adequate a narrative in terms of what's really going on in society. And so what you want to do is you want to entertain people. As long as you keep entertained, they never ask a question. What about this? Or what about that? They're entertaining tenderly. So we talk about Fox News in terms of is in terms of the kind of uh, 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 nefarious uh, narrative that they put forth consistently. It, it makes money. It also incapacitates to keep people complacent in terms of the situation they find themselves. So you have this enormous amount of poverty in society, but as long as you keep people in, 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 uh, uh, entertained, they don't ask the hard question, and that's part of the strategy. But again, that's part of the in terms of how capitalism works. It must create avenues in which to distract people from what's really going on in society where the people adequately understand, understood what was going on in society. Then you have revolution tomorrow morning. And clearly, on that point, I agree, and I close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Anthony, it sounded like to me this particular presenter was presenting the history of oppression. When he became the victim of it, now he's singing a different tune. What do you take from this particular narrative? as relates to this old question of how the elite rule the world. Is that the biggest changes over the years have been changes in technology. Uh, you know, now uh, everything is uh, driven by computers now. But other than that, uh, the essence of what he said uh you know pretty uh, pretty much is true today except that everything is high tech now that's the only difference thank you brother Anthony. going to brother moses brother moses your critique of how the elite do the world today based upon what you have just read just heard. 
Well, they have their interests, uh, which is political, social, and economic. Um, they um, they have the ideas which perpetuate their their status in society and their economic status as a class. And uh, you know they're international in terms of of um, like he said, there's there's no loyalty to any particular country. Um, it's about money and uh, what 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 needs to be done in order to make money. And so, you know, I thought it, it was pretty good. Um, um, I was um, list, I listened to another article, um, the, the other, the other, another video you sent out, and uh, you know, and I thought it was good. They were saying the purpose of racism is to control the behavior of white people. When people of color don't accept the lie, they know they're not inferior, and. Uh, you know, state violence is like white supremacy on steroids. Um, you know, it's like, you know, they just go, get out of control. Um, and when when the protests of injustice is happening, when when there's an injustice, the question is who's in the street? Who who are the people that are in the street? And it's usually people of third world people, people of color. And um. Uh, uh, but like the elite, you know, they they have their own interests, and you know, it's diametrically opposed to the interests of the mass of the people. Thank you. And your poor brother Moses, the other one, how they use violence to create um, a capitulation among the poor whites is true, and we will have that discussion next week as we will further discuss racial capitalism. Let's go to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, you heard what the, what the young man had to say. I'm just wondering when you were listening to it, you feel like he was talking to you. Were you part of his audience? What's your critique of what you just heard, Sister Eleanor? Well, um, I am not a part of the uh, uh, elite in this society. However, um, the uh, reality is that um, with the 1980s and that Ronald Reagan uh, revolution, there was a great change in journalism and the integrity of journalists, and that's no longer required. And as I was saying earlier, I was talking about African-Americans, African-Americans, and as we call them, Africans born in America, make up 40% of the people missing in this country. Literally over 236 of them in 2022 were not even claimed, their bodies claimed or identified. And these incidents go largely unreported. The number of persons under the age of 18 is phenomenal. The state presents them as 
runaways and claims that they lived in crime-swept communities where there is an absence of guidance or focus on the community at large by itself, you know, the community having an interest in itself, in that um, the reality is uh, whether some of that is true, but we're here letting the world know that these people are missing, and they're missing every year. 40% of the missing persons in America are missing from a group that represents only 13% of the population. This is an example of systemic racism, and those that report their missing family members it's not embraced by the state, by the whether it's the park police, the, police, the metropolitan police, the local sheriff, whoever it is, ignores it, puts it aside as runaway. Also, something interesting about that speaker that uh, he talked about uh, the ruling class. One thing interests me some years ago, about 20-some years ago, working on a campaign, and when a candidate is working on a campaign, you get the voters' roll. And one thing interests me about the rich and the poor and us Africans, we don't vote. And we don't vote because we don't know why we need to and we think we're having an influence when we don't vote. But the rich don't vote because they don't need to. They just pick up a phone and get done what they want done. And it was very interesting. Well, there was, a, for example, a complex where the average income, I don't know what the average income was, but the units were about, this was 23 years ago, 20 years ago. The units were over three quarters of a million dollars, not including their condo fees and their utilities and their parking and other things. And uh, no one voted. <laughs> one person in the entire unit voted. Now, it doesn't mean they weren't registered to vote. Because anyone who has a car is automatically a registered voter, but they didn't exercise the privilege of voting. And Africans in America, born in America, are the only people that depend on the Voters' Rights Act uh, every couple of decades or so to be reaffirmed to maintain their right to vote. So this guy really talked about the internationalism that has developed in modern society. So in the neo-colonialist states in Africa, they're very wealthy individuals. In Asia, two of the world's wealthiest men in the top 20 live in India. We know in China, over 10 trillionaires, you know, in the Chinese state, 
of course, we know the Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and these people here in this United States of America. So the reality is they can all beach on each other, beach on the same beach at the same resort and feel like they're in a cosmopolitan, multiracial, multi-ethnic world and not even think about the masses because they're in an integrated world. But as he said, it's a very narrow group, both in this country, in Europe, Asia, and Africa. It's not the masses, it's the few. And uh, with the changing of laws governing uh, journalism and the news and how it's presented, it's no longer, it has become what Brother Haki described as the Fox Network is news entertainment. And even in their recent settlement over the voter machine lies that they presented to the public and broadcast around the world, they had to pay a huge sum, but never did they have to say the words that we are Fox News Entertainment. Now, for the intellectuals, for the politically conscious, they read about news entertainment all the time, and we know the characters involved. And we definitely saw it during the beginning of the Ukrainian conflict and continue to. Everywhere across the news media, Russia became our arch enemy. And the Ukrainian state of the, the state of the Ukraine became the oppressed allies. But we don't save oppressed people in this country. We oppress United States of America is a great oppressor. It's a conqueror of the Philippines in 1898, of Puerto Rico around the same time. And God knows when they acquired the West Virgin Islands. And through eminent domain, no person's mm-hmm. property is safe if the ruling class decides they need it for development as good as sold. So um, I think uh, this uh, interview uh, and the, the change in journalism and the styles and practices from true journalism, investigative journalism, some type of news entertainment is a a phenomenon. And uh, the reality of truth and information is not. Jackson, Mississippi has been the capital of a the state of Mississippi has had a water problem for well over a decade. And I believe almost a half, 
16 years maybe, if not 13, water being shipped in Flint, Michigan, the same problem. Or the fact that the largest aqueduct in the United States is owned by one individual. So the things that uh, this article reminded, this uh, interview reminded me of is the news oil is going to be water. How much we're going to have to pay for just a drink of clean water in the very near future. And George W. Bush granddaughter was, uh, of the Bush family acquired the largest aqueduct in South America, when I talk about an aqueduct, I'm not talking about under Ecuador or or uh, Chile or one country. These aqueducts are under several nations, as in the United States, the aqueduct is underground water that covers several states. So these are properties now. It used to just be simple ground rights through the advancement of satellite technology. As we talked about, uh, the company wanting to use a Russian uh, spacecraft to take a satellite out because it was about money, not about nation-state loyalty. The same, this, this, this satellite information has allowed for seeing things that we never imagined seeing. Like this week, a Mayan city in Mexico was discovered under the jungle. But what has been discovered is the water, the oil deposits, other mineral deposits that aren't even discussed. But the mining goes on unreported simply because it's done by the poor and the working class. And when I talked about housing, that was an interesting uh, topic because initially public housing was created after World War II for whites, as was the FHA program, which created the suburbs. So they transitioned from this type of government-subsidized housing the government guarantees mortgages. Ergo, the suburbs developed track housing. And it was segregated. The U.S. government segregated housing. Prior to World War II, neighborhoods weren't necessarily integrated, but they didn't have the strict segregation lines. A black farmer may live across the road from a white farmer. Never did they speak, so they shared the same road, or maybe even the same trip, uh, tributary running through their property. But if that white man's cow came down and the blacks owned that tributary, they better make sure they get that cow back up on the other side before there's any trouble. And it was a very good analogy of the equestrian class, because I think in the state of Virginia, out well, I mean, 
the whites get a fox and they get on their horses and let the fox and the dog out and they just run right across your land. They give you notice so you know to stay in the house, get your animals out of that pasture so they can ride through. And there's never, uh, whether or not people were compensated, I really don't. Only I do not know. So uh, class is, uh, and racism is in full effect in the United States and the world. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Adenor. Brother Sabukwe, just the fact one identified themselves as American seeks to have American interest and focus is the indication that they have no respect for the indigenous people who was here, the Africans who were enslaved, the Asians who were put in concentration camps, and the whole world continued to be fucked over based upon the same principles that we call being and values that we call America. Your response to how the elite control the world, Brother Subukwe. Yes, Brother Africa. Um, that, that speech was interesting. At the beginning, uh, it took me for a loop. Uh, it seemed like the, the, the speaker had a, a metaphysical uh, approach, method approach, a, a dealer's approach, because he stated, if I understood him correctly, that uh, basically it, 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 we will always have a ruling class. Uh, it will always be elites. Um, oh, he, he stated at the beginning of his speech. So that, 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 that's my, uh, you know, one of my major critiques. Um, and having that idea that there will always be rich people and there will always be poor people. That's, 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 that's an idealist approach. That's, that's, you know, that's a meta, meta, metaphysical approach to the, to this. Um, what if, when you, when you're addressing, when we're addressing, uh, this capitalist system, because that's what his attempt was to address or critique the capitalist system. He has to, and he was talking about different classes, classes, or you know. Uh, but my my approach as as a Pan Africanist, as a, as a as a as a as a, as a socialist, um, we need to focus on class struggle, and we need to identify and study class struggle. Uh, you will not get any change without class struggle. You will not get any quote unquote revolution into, without class struggle. Um, Therefore, in order to uh, in order to overthrow capitalism, you have to replace it with something. What is that system that's going to replace capitalism? Scientific socialism, meaning common ownership of the means of production, distribution, and uh, exchange. Production is for use and not for profit. It's for people, not for profit. Political power being in the hands of the people, the entire body of workers. Possessing, possessing the necessary governmental machinery through which to express their needs and aspirations. Humanist, a humanistic society, a egalitarianistic society. This is the system that socialism, socialism, and economic system in which the major means of production, land, mineral resources, technology, equipment, machines are owned and controlled collectively by the people and for the benefit of the people. 
for the workers, not where we have a system now with, uh, you know, basically the Western European, as you say, elite, capitalist, elite, the capitalist, utilizing Congo, Congo's case and study, nearly every weapon used in most wars of the 20th century was made of copper from the Congo. All tanks, fighter jets, marines, machine guns, rifles, all were more effective because of the copper specifically used from the Congo. So, you know, and I just say this, not to be long with it, the United States of America and Great Britain used millions of artillery shells in World War in World War One. Uh, had, uh, had they had uh, brass um, casings made primarily from Congolese copper, cannons, bombs, bullets, torpedoes. Navy instruments also utilized copper from Congo. From the Congo. In 1939, Albert Einstein dramatically warned President Roosevelt, FDR, Franklin Delano Delano Roosevelt, that the Nazi regime could potentially develop an atomic bomb. He informed Roosevelt that uranium was the key and the most important source of uranium is was in the Congo. The largest source of uranium ore was in the Chicoble uh, Man, Belgian work Belgian owned ninety percent of the global reserves of uranium. One thousand two hundred tons of Congolese uranium were shipped to to New York in nineteen forty to keep it away from Nazi and Germany. The in the miners the workers in the Congo who are in the mines are dying left and right. They are being exposed to radi- radiation, which have birth life lifelong birth effects and cancer. So this is what we're talking about when we when 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 you're dealing with a capitalist system that we have to get rid of. That's what the capitalist system produced: high blood pressure, diabetes. My my leg hurt from standing on my feet for twelve hour shifts, twenty four hour shifts to try to raise my children. That's that's capitalism. You're doing all of that wealth work. You you you're you're producing all of all of that the labor in an Amazon factory for a billionaire capitalist by the name of Jeff Be- Bezos to fly to outer to the to the outer space to 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 see and take a trip to outer space. That's what he's doing while millions of our people, workers, black, white, blue, suffer, die in the in the height of COVID twenty twenty. They was dying was dying left and right as workers in his factories, Amazon. Dying, COVID nineteen killing us. Sick, we was dying while he was enjoying enjoying our fruits of our labor from our labor. So this is what we got to be. I, I, I urge that 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 that, that speaker, um, I miss his name, who was who was taking a stand but addressing with uh um a, a ruling class. Call it for what it is. Capitalism. That's what it. That's what it is. We cannot have a metaphysical approach to this to this craziness and, and to this madness to to the traumas of our people, to a society where Bruce Bruce Tucker, an African here in Virginia, he was just he he was a he 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 was trying to enjoy uh, his fruits of his his labor working, and 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 and, and, and you know 
hanging out with his friends and, 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 and having a little drink and he fell and bumped his head bumped his head on the ground. They took him to the Medical College of Virginia, MCV, now owned by VCU. They took his body, killed him, basically killed him. They killed him, took his heart without his family knowing, without him knowing, and gave it to a wealthy businessman. And then they said, and then they then they promoted in the in the media and the newspaper, um, MCV. We had we had performed our first heart transplant. We had did it off the benefit of an African. So my point my point being, I'm, we cannot sit around and continue to 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 evaluate reforms to evaluate reforms as the solution. Reforms are not the solution. Reforms is a Band-Aid. Reforms are not the solution. Reforms in the form of, of voting or this and that. I understand, you know, voting, uh, you, don't, you don't want the, uh, the likes of Trump. You don't want the likes of, 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 of Governor um, uh, Yunkin, DeSantos, all of these creeps, if you will. I understand that. But you still got the, the creeps in the form of Joe Biden that's going to give us uh, a, a, a Emmett Till monument Celebration to Emmett Till and his mother a monument when he was in power when 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 the when the when the white woman or when the woman a lady however you want to frame her the white racist that she was when she was alive and she was the she was one of the uh, uh, murderers to Emmett Till he did not pressure his uh, state government or the you know the United States the military what have you Congress what what have you to go arrest this lady. For for being involved in the murder of our of our young fourteen year old Emmett Till, so rather if you vote, you cannot put we cannot invest our our life and our power and our and our labor into one person. That is played out. We done did that after time after time. You can you can do it as a, as a band aid approach. Um, not not only voting but any form of reforms. Uh, taking money. Uh, donation after donation, aid after aid. Aid is not it. It's not the aid. It's the people organizing and becoming political educated into an organization and understanding class struggle, understanding the, what's going to replace an oppressive system, a more humanitarian system, by the name of scientific socialism. I conclude. Thank you, Brother Sugukwe. As you heard, you are tired getting played while you getting paid. This is Africa on the Move. When we come back, we'll give our final thoughts on the first part of the two-part series, A Critique of Racial Capitalism.
in chains, living in pain. Today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by the news, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey. Yes, last through my journey. We must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, for soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be to know. That I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Hellerino. A bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia. A scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino! You can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights, pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, 
and all the Pelorinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be, to know that I've been here, and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. For more than 30 years, the Piscataway Indian Nation singers and dancers have been touring the world in an attempt to break stereotypes and educate others about the history of their people. Their leader and narrator, Mark Tyak, is the son of a 28th generation Piscataway chieftain. When his father passes, it will be his turn to lead his tribe. During a ceremonial war dance, James Edwards displays the American Indian virtue of mercy by not striking his target. Steve Conway demonstrated what is called a men's grass dance. These were often used by American Indians to flatten grassy plains before making camp. Here Eagle Boy Co. leads sophomore elementary education and engineering major Melissa Zichkowski in a rabbit dance, traditionally done by couples. Conway took the stage yet again to demonstrate a ring dance, an age-old tradition of forming shapes with rings, things like eagles, turtles, and the world. Co. performed an eagle dance, while Tayek explained the origin of the term Indian as it is used to describe Native Americans. The term came from Columbus, who, after being taken in by natives, affectionately dubbed them Indios, Spanish for in God. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move on the 30th day of July, 2023. This is the first part of the two-part series, A Critique of Racial Capitalism. We hope that we have provided you with some information today where you can use it as a tool for liberation to help push your people and your movement forward and to help bring about a better humanity. At this point in time, our political panelists and analysts, they have been in the seat, taking the heat as the defining stand behind it, they would like to share with you their final thoughts for this particular program. And we would like to remind you that Africa on the Move comes on every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. We ask all our friends, supporters, and listeners to help us build this radio show by making sure that you get a copy of this program and you share it with your network. If you need a copy of this particular program or any others, please just email us at africaonthemove2 at gmail.com. So right now we're going to return you back to our political panelists and analysts for today's program, and we're going to have them give us their final thoughts for tonight. We're going to start with Brother Moses. Your final thoughts for tonight, Brother Moses. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa. Uh, it's been, a, as usual, an interesting show uh, I think we have recovered a lot of ground. Um, 
I guess I would be um, remiss if I didn't at least say something about the ruling class, um, because the ruling class, in all societies, there's a ruling class. Um, the question is only is who is the ruling class? And um, in the China and Cuba, you know, in the proletarian states, the, the working class is in power, and their representatives um, are embodied in the party of the proletariat. The Communist Party, and so, you know, um, that's I just clear that up um, because you know things are coming into being and going out of being. Uh, nations come into being and go out of being. Um, um, it's a dialectical historical materialism. And so you know we we the power to define is the power to rule, and so we need to get get empower our our position, our understanding of the world and um get let the working class dominate society and suppress the bourgeoisie. The ruling class won't go away. They will be still there. It's just that they won't be able to do what they want to do because the, the we have to suppress the dictatorship of the proletariat must be in effect. We must dictate to them our interests. And keep them from having their interests, just like, just like as of right now, they are in power and they are suppressing our interests. And so you know, it's a dollar for historical materialist, uh, a concrete analysis, concrete condition type world, and we need we need all power to go to the people. The people have to take up the party. The party makes them conscious, uh, and the people have to take up their understanding of the world. And um, and govern themselves accordingly. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next, we will go to Sister Eleanor. Your final thoughts for tonight, Sister Eleanor. Okay. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Have taken her exit for the night, and we're gonna go. We have Brother Tibukwe. Brother Sibukwe, your final thoughts for tonight. Thank you, Brother Africa, for another great episode of Africa on the Move. Thank you so much again for having me here. Thank you for being a revolutionary, a freedom fighter. Um, capitalism must go. It must die. Um, you know, they, you know the, the dictator that got, has to go. Um, the people are the ones. We are the ones who are catching hell on a daily basis. But we, we, and we are the ones going to have to overthrow uh capitalism, neocolonialism, and imperialism. Thank you so much, Pan Africanism of Paris. Or continue to Paris as we are. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Thank you, Brother Subukwe, for your contribution to today's program. From Brother Subukwe, we now take you to Brother Haki. And we will give his final thoughts for the <coughs> Brother Haki. Yeah, but hold on a second. <coughs> yes. Excuse me, brother. Yeah, okay, brother Africa. Yes, we can. Yeah. We here. Well, yeah, you know, um, you know, recently I I I disclosed a few weeks back, Bloomberg did a report in terms of the state of the U.S. economy, and in the Bloomberg report, he talked about the GDP growth in the year 2023 was only three tenths of one percent, and this for the entire year of 2023. 
Now, what is interesting is that the potential in terms of recession is growing, and this according to 38 leading economists. In fact, that's a 7, 7 in 10 chance of recession. But even when you talk about the state of the GDP, the state of the American economy, even in the annualized growth statistics, which essentially is uh, a guess in terms of potential growth for the economy, they're expecting a 7 10% decline in terms of, U- of U.S. GDP. And, uh, d- and, and superimposed upon that, we're talking about a situation in which consumer spending, uh, which represents about 60% of, the, of GDP, is actually, is actually in decline. So what that means is that fundamentally uh, money that the government needs in terms of running, uh, running the economy or something like there. Now, superimposed upon the other situation where uh, the, the, the Republican Party plans to give $67 billion of tax cuts to major corporations, in addition to $83 billion for the top 1% of, one, top 1% of, of the population in America. So what that fundamentally means is that, you know, um, the revenues that the government needs in terms of operating are something like there. Now, we have to ask ourselves, given that reality, if the government doesn't have the revenues it needs in an economy decline, it means that the opportunity for jobs, the opportunity for education, opportunity for affordable housing, all those things that things people need are simply become non-existent. In other words, the social condition becomes so chaotic, so, so very treacherous, uh, that inevitably in creates a certain amount of instability for the system at large. My question to the, to the, to the audience, given this level of instability that's rising in the society, who do you think they're going to say is responsible for that economic instability? Do you think it's going to be the capitalist class, or do you think it's going to be poor people, and specifically African people being the scapegoats for the kind of economy? Well, if you haven't figured that one out by now, I, I, I'll, tell to you, I'll tell you, it's going to be African people and working poor people who will be the scapegoats in terms of a poor functioning economy. And the reason why I say this, because I think it's important that we understand that when we talk about the precarious nature of the African existence in society, it's not hyperbole. We're not saying this simply to titillate, you know, or to frighten people or to unnecessarily, you know, uh, um, stress people out. That's not what we're doing. What we're trying to get you to see is that given the nature in terms of how the economy operates and given, given, given the fact that the disparity that is by and large a function of the capitalist society, it creates a situation which suggests, you know, that someone has to be blamed, you know, for this, for this, for this, for this problem. And historically, whenever the economy goes south, historically, African people have always taken the blame in terms of being too lazy, not working hard enough, you know, or lack of drive and initiative, or anything to justify that somehow the problem with the American economy is lays on the shoulder of African people. Narrative has not changed when I older. It's changed in terms of sophistication. It presents a different narrative, but the essence is the same. African people will continue to be blamed for the overall decline of the U.S. economy. And make no mistake about it, all of these things, all of these statistics are clear indication of decline of the U.S. economy or general decline of the capitalist system. We as African people have to understand clearly, you know, that people in positions of power, the elite understand that given that disunity, we're, a, we're a, a historically, when we look at it in terms of, you know, the favorite scapegoat, the elite understands that African people are their preferred target in terms of demonization. We have to understand, understand this fully. And it, so it becomes extremely important in terms of organization 
in terms of being able to combat whatever comes down the road. Because let me tell you something. When the government, this process of demonization is, is, is becoming only becoming more intensified. As it becomes more and more intense, it's going to sway more and more people in terms of the uselessness of African people in terms of not being an attribute due to the overall U.S. economy. To the extent people internalize such drivel, such nonsense, it, 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 it reflects illiteracy, the lack of, edu- lack of education in American society where people don't have lack of quality education, some because the ruling class has deemed quality education is, is not in the interest of capitalism survival to make sure people understand that people can adequately read and write and interpret events of the day. And so, therefore, you know, in that context, you got to understand that more and more people are being swayed by this propaganda. Organization is a must. We must have organization. We must, we must create organization, not just in terms of dealing with the potentiality that comes down the road, but also from a more pragmatic point of view in terms of protecting the, the, the integrity, the intellect, the emotional stability of our children. We must do that. We need those, those, those institutions. And as always, Brother Africa, I conclude by simply saying that, you know, I encourage people to unravel the matrix. Uh, one of the things that are very clear, no matter what you think about in terms of the, uh, in terms of American society, uh, one thing we cannot disregard is that the fundamental inequality in the society is long and deep. And if we think for one second that somehow this fundamental inequality is going to dissipate or simply disappear, then we're sadly mistaken. In that context, we've got to be aware of what's going on, understand everything that takes place in society, create those organizations that are so key in terms of our longevity in society. And I'm say that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. And you do the same, Brother Haki. As you stated, we must organize or perish. We'll make our transition right now to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts? for today's program. My final thought for today's program is that the solution to racial capitalism and all other forms of human exploitation is scientific socialism. Pan-Africanism is our contribution to that process. And uh, Pan-Africanism is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. That must be the goal of all African revolutionaries everywhere. And uh, if you're not in an organization that is working for Pan-Africanism, join one. And if you don't see one out there you like, create your own. But we must get organized in order to bring about the achievement of Pan-Africanism and the defeat of uh, imperialism, capitalism, Zionism, all other forms of human oppression. And we can only do that through permanent organization guided by a revolutionary ideology. One such organization is the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. I bet that this pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism, guided by revolutionary ideology and chromism tourism. 
On that note, I will conclude, and I thank you for having me on the program tonight. It's always an honor, Father Anthony, to have your presence on our program, and you give your contribution to your manager. We thank you. In closing to our listening audience, I would like to just say and give a shout-out to Reverend Daughtry up in New York City for recently hosting a celebration and a homecoming and honoring Brother Kwame Ture on the 29th. That was Saturday. I heard the program was well done. But more importantly, I think in terms of our historical figures and future fighters, we must know that when it comes to our history, we must deserve it. So just by the fact of you understanding the, the, the value and the contribution this brother has made to our people, towards our people's liberation, we'd like to give you a shout-out. And we also would like to direct the people to the website of the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. On this coming month, August the 19th, they'll be doing a special program addressing the particular historical role and responsibilities of the youth, the students, and women. We encourage all of you who are listening to this program to go and check the website out and sign up to be on the seminar on the 19th of August, starting at 12 p.m., dealing with youth, students, and women and their unique role and the means that they have within themselves to help bring about the kind of changes that we need to free our people and make a better humanity. So check out their website at www.a-aprp-gc.org, as Brother Anthony alluded to earlier. In closing, we just would like to say to you, Africans, let's get organized. Organization is the key. It will help set all Africans free. Contribution to an organized manner. Through organization, you can act more precisely. Through organization, you can see more clearly. Through organization, you can make the proper changes that you need to make in order to make sure the future is victorious. Organization is your ally, ally, not your enemy. Let's get organized. Until next time, come and join us next week as we continue part two of a critique of racial or racial capitalism, and spread the word. Help us build our listenership or increase of 100,000 people more in the next six months. Until next time, like always, I'm Brother Africa or Africa on the Move, and we describe to always for our faculty level. We thank you for coming to your homes this evening. Now we'll give you some sounds of sweet liberation as you listen to the music to express resistance Being Africa on the moon. We're going to take you to Palestine. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. 
They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine. Needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, needs her freedom. Palestine, needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why. People cannot live, so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs our love, needs our love, Palestine, Palestine, needs her freedom, Palestine, needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed, plant the seed of love, and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone, so all the world will know that Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Palestine, needs Needs our love, needs our love, Palestine, Palestine, needs her freedom, needs her freedom, Palestine, needs our
venezolana y todo lo que se haga en Venezuela. No solo es un ritmo, escucha las letras tan criollo como que te vean y te digan, eh, para que te choquen las manos. Al final del día, dale, hablamos. Y lo que más me alegra, la gente latina siempre será gente negra. Comandante, te amo. Que Dios te bendiga. ¿Dónde está Maranta? El Amaranta y el Pinky, ¿dónde están? ¿No? La cantera.
Don't you where you come from? 